My name is Nathan Smith, and I'm one of the three pastors here at Piney Ridge. And again, if you're a guest, just want to say welcome. We're glad that God has brought you here to worship with us today. Um, you're joining us today on the final Sunday of a study that we've been doing through the book of 2 Thessalonians. So uh, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll just be looking at verses 16 through 18 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one. There's some on the back table and would invite you to go and grab one of those and feel free to take that home with you if you need a Bible. Um, but would love for you to have a Bible and to have it open to 2 Thessalonians 3. And again, we'll be right at the end, verses 16 through 18. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Lord, we, we trust your word as we sing, and it's because we trust your word that we turn our attention and our hearts to it, but God, we, we are prone to doubt, we're prone to question, we're prone to take lightly your word, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us the faith that we need to receive this word this morning as what it is. Your words to us, the word of the living God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who is giving us life, you've spoken to us. We thank you for that. Please help us to receive your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Nine million soldiers killed in action. Five million civilians killed from occupation Bombardment, hunger, or disease. This was World War I. <clears throat> At the time, it was called the Great War. And after it ended in 1919, it came to be called the War to End All Wars. Because the world anticipated a long-lasting peace after the horrors of that conflict. And yet, just 20 years later, in 1939, a far more deadly conflict began... And this despite the fact that in 1938, the British Prime Minister Neville, Neville Chamberlain returned from negotiations with Germany, declaring that he had obtained what he said was peace for our time. And World War II would ultimately claim around 80 million lives. And as we all know, there's been little peace in the world, especially between nations since that time. And now as Russia invades Ukraine and the possibility of nuclear attacks give birth to fears of a World War III, Ukrainians who are experiencing the horrors of this war are saying, we thought that this kind of thing was all ancient history. We thought this was all in the past. They assumed that they would live out their lives in relative peace. But peace on the world stage is fleeting as we see just from these few examples. But it's no more fleeting than peace in our own lives, right? We, we may feel at peace. We may have a season of peace in our lives. And then cancer strikes us, someone we love. We may feel at peace in, in our relationships. And then out of the blue, it seems that a relationship that, that actually seemed to bring you peace is suddenly broken. There's a rift in it, and there's no more peace in that relationship. Maybe you feel at peace in your job. You feel secure. 
then all of a sudden that job's gone. Feel secure in your finances, and then inflation hits, and there's no peace in your finances. Peace is very, very fleeting. And so where can we find peace? Well, some seek peace in nature and find a measure of peace there. But a, a beautiful, peaceful sunrise may be an indication of a violent storm to come later in the day. Some seek peace through family. Families, though, can inflict painful, deep wounds out of the blue. Maybe, maybe your vision of peace, though, is just being curled up next to a, a peaceful fire with a good book or a good movie if you're not a reader. Well, we know that peaceful fire can quickly turn into a raging inferno that can burn your house to the ground. It actually happened to my parents. Um, <clears throat> 20-some years ago, Christmas Day, their house burned to the ground. Fire can be cozy and peaceful, or it can be violent and deadly. And so if we think there's any true lasting peace in any of these kinds of things, we're just fooling ourselves. And so where can we turn to find true and lasting peace? There's only one place, and through one means, and that is that the Lord of peace gives us peace as we trust and obey his word. The Lord of peace gives us peace as we trust and obey his word. And I'm going to ask you to stand now as we read from the word of God. We stand to honor the word of God. And so again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. And you can have a seat. So as he closes this letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul shares with them what he deeply desires and what he's praying for them, and that is that they would have a true and deep and enduring peace. And as we look closely at the way that he expresses this desire and this prayer, we see him first reminding them that that we can only drink of true peace, this true peace that we all thirst for when we go to the source. We have to go to the Lord of peace. As we see in the beginning of verse 16, the Lord of peace is the source of peace. Now, peace is one of those words that we can use here often and really only have a vague idea of what it means. So what is peace? I think for many of us, peace is, um, it really only has a negative sense. And what I mean by that is that We think of peace only as the absence of something. We think of peace merely as the absence of war, or peace is freedom from external strife and internal stress. But the biblical concept of peace, while it includes that sense of peace, it's also far more broad than that. Even for the New Testament writers, the concept of peace is grounded in the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means to be complete or to be sound. It speaks of wholeness, of being truly human, of living life 
under the blessing of God as the people of God. Shalom speaks of restoration of all that was broken in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. Sin broke the relationship between God and man. It, it broke the relationship between man and nature. It broke the relationship between man and, and other men and women. And it broke the relationships of our, ourselves. It broke that inner sense of wholeness. And so when Paul prays that these brothers and sisters would be given peace, he's asking for them to have a foretaste of the age to come when all of these rifts caused by sin will be repaired and all that's been ripped apart by sin will be brought together again. He's praying for their wholeness, that they will have the sweet communion with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. He's praying that they will be united with one another within the body of Christ, that they will have a peace within their own minds, within their own hearts. This is the shalom. This is the peace that Paul prays that they'll have. But they'll only receive it if the Lord of peace gives it, because he is the Lord of peace. Look how he get again at how he begins this. Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Paul is almost invariably referring to Jesus when he says. Lord in his letters. And so in using this title, the Lord of peace, he's talking about Jesus. And so why does he call Jesus the Lord of peace? Well, Isaiah prophesied this of Jesus in Isaiah 9. He said, this is a familiar passage, it's often read around uh, the Advent season or Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and it goes on and says, and he shall be called, among other things, the Prince of Peace. And thus, when Jesus was born, the angels proclaimed to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus is called the Lord of peace because it's through him and him alone that the restoration of all things, that shalom, would come to this broken world. And Jesus is qualified to be the Lord of peace for at least three reasons. I'm going to talk about three. There are probably more. But first, he's the Lord of peace because he is at peace within his divinity. Jesus is God, and God is the most at-peace being in existence. In fact, I think we could say that God is the only being absolutely at peace because he alone is truly whole, truly undivided in any way, truly without conflict. Yes, there is conflict against God. There's conflict outside of God. And yet there's a perfect tranquility, a perfect peace within God. He alone of all beings has perfect harmony within himself. He's not now, he never has been, and he never will be anxious or stressed out. He's different from us, for sure. There's no doubts no conflicting or competing interests that exist in his mind or heart that he doesn't know how to resolve. He's not inwardly disturbed by external conflict because he is absolutely certain that those external conflicts are working for his own glory and the ultimate good of the people that he loves. He never worries never has anxiety because he has absolute confidence in his own perfect will and in his own perfect power to carry out all his holy will. And so Jesus is the Lord of peace, first of all, because he is the God of peace. And second, Jesus is qualified to be the Lord of peace in his humanity. 
because he is the only human to ever live and remain at perfect peace with the Father. When Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one, he's claiming a unity of relationship with the Father that no other person could claim. He had a perfect wholeness in his humanity because he had no sin to cause the kind of brokenness that the rest of us experience. He is the Lord of peace because he submitted perfectly to the will of his heavenly Father, and thus he maintained unbroken fellowship, a relationship of perfect peace with his heavenly Father. And third, Jesus is qualified to be the Lord of peace because through his obedience, he earned the right to become the reconciler of all things. Colossians 1 says that it's through Jesus Christ that God has reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus became the only one through whom peace with God can come. No one and nothing is reconciled to God apart from the Lord of peace. And since our relationship to God is at the center of our being, you will not have any true peace unless you are reconciled to God. But then once you are reconciled to God, that peace at your core will begin to spread out and give you peace throughout your life. And as the Lord of peace, Jesus has the sole rights to peace, you might say. He owns the exclusive copyright. Peace belongs to Jesus. It's his to either give or to withhold. And it is through his work on the cross that he accomplished this. And so in John 14, as the time drew near for Jesus to go to the cross, he said to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in John 16, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The Lord of peace alone gives peace. And by using this title in this letter, calling Jesus the Lord of Peace, the Apostle Paul may have been intentionally uh, contrasting Jesus with Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. In Jesus' lifetime, Caesar Augustus had brought an end to war within the known world. And because of this, Caesar had become to be known as the King or Lord of Peace. But notice that in verse 16, Paul prays that the true Lord of peace will give them peace at all times and in every way. The peace of Caesar Augustus was a temporary and limited peace. He brought uh, an end to wars in the known world at that time, which was actually only a small portion of the world. And it didn't bring into wars even for very long, as history has proved. And it certainly didn't bring peace to everyone within the realm in the sense that there wasn't peace within uh, relationships. There wasn't peace within families. There certainly wasn't peace in the hearts of people. And definitely wasn't peace between God and man that Caesar Augustus brought. It was a temporary peace, a limited peace. But true peace has to be a lasting and complete peace. If it's temporary or if it's limited, it isn't true peace. True peace is a peace that can't be destroyed by circumstances, can't be destroyed even by death. 
Caesar Augustus could not bring lasting peace, just like Neville Chamberlain couldn't bring lasting peace, not even for his time. And just like no president of the United States will ever bring lasting peace, not in the world, not in this country, certainly not in our own minds and hearts. The Lord of peace alone is the source of shalom, of true, real, and lasting peace. And the peace that he gives is a peace that is not blown away by external circumstances or even by our own emotional state. There is a peace that goes deeper than our emotional state. Listen to what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, I know, perhaps as well as anyone, what depression means and what it is to feel myself sinking lower and lower. And yet at the worst, when I reach the lowest depths, I have an inward peace, which no pain or depression can in the least disturb. Trusting in Jesus Christ, my Savior, there is still a blessed quietness in the deep caverns of my soul. This is the true peace that only the Lord of peace can give, unshakable, even in the face of pain and depression. And so Paul prays at the end of verse 16 that the Lord of peace will be with them all because it's only in his presence that we can experience this true, deep, lasting peace. And his word is the only reliable conduit of peace. And if you're familiar at all with Paul's letters, um, you know that he ends every one of them with a prayer for grace, which we see here in verse 18, and for peace. He begins his letters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or something very similar to that. And he ends with a similar, uh, what what uh, commentators often call a wish prayer. He's saying, this is my desire. This is what I'm desiring and praying for you. He expresses it as, um, may the Lord, because he's praying it for them. This was his desire and his prayer for all the churches that he wrote to. But what he says in verse 17 is unusual in his letters. So let's read it again. Verse 17 says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. And when compared to Paul's other letters, this almost seems out of place, like it's an interruption. And so I think we should ask, why does he add this here? I believe it's because he wants them to have peace. And he knows that the word of the Lord is the only reliable conduit of peace. The Lord of peace is the source of peace. He's the fountain from which all peace flows. But how does he get that peace to us? His word is the pipeline that delivers peace to the life of the believer. And so as an apostle, Paul had been authorized personally by the Lord Jesus to speak on his behalf. So Paul wants these believers in Thessalonica to be confident that what they've read in This letter has come from him with full apostolic authority so that it is, in fact, the word of the Lord that they've read. He wants to assure them of this. Because if you remember from our study of chapter 2, the peace of some of the Thessalonian believers had been shaken by forgeries. Um, If you have your Bible open, you can probably just look up the page to the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So we ask you not to have your peace destroyed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so it seems likely that someone had written a letter in Paul's name with some false teaching that had shaken their understanding of the day of the Lord and disrupted their peace. And so Paul was writing this letter to correct their doctrine because false doctrine can't give true peace. And Paul's aim is for these Christians to have true peace. He doesn't want them to be shaken in mind. He wants them to have a solid, unshakable peace, despite the fact that, as we read in chapter 1, they were being persecuted. And so he adds verse 17 in chapter 3 to assure them that this letter is authentic. He's saying, this is the truth. Believe this, obey this, and you will have peace. It's a trustworthy word. It's the conduit of peace because the Lord of peace himself has authorized and inspired it. And I think it's safe to draw the principle from this that all of Scripture, not just this particular letter, but all of Scripture is the conduit of peace for us as believers. That the Bible is the main pipeline through which the Lord of peace pours out his endless peace to us. Which should lead us then to ask, how do we open ourselves up to be a receptacle of peace? How do we receive the peace that the Lord has a desire to give to us through his word? Well, you must know, trust, and obey the word to receive his peace. You must know, trust, and obey the word to receive his peace. And so, first of all, that means that you need to listen to his word frequently. You need to listen to his word frequently. I don't know if any of you have had this experience, but I've had many an experience, uh, many a time where I've experienced having a, a tire that had a leak in it, uh, and it was such a slow leak that it was like, eh, is it worth taking it, the trouble of taking it in to get it fixed? Nah, I'll just put some air in it every now and then. And so fill it up, drive a little ways, and then usually at the worst time, you notice that it's low and it needs to be filled up. Or maybe if your sensors are all working, the, the uh, light comes on and lets you know that your tire is low and you fill it up again because you've got this slow leak. Well, we're like that when it comes to peace. We leak peace. We can be filled up with peace from the word, maybe through a sermon, maybe sitting down in the morning and spending time in the word. We feel at peace, we feel filled up with peace, and then it starts leaking out as soon as we walk out of the door, or maybe even before that. We leak peace. And so you have to refill your peace regularly by reading the word daily, by meditating on it, by memorizing the word, by listening to the word on your phone, by listening to the preaching of the word on Sundays as you are now, and by hearing the word from your brothers and sisters throughout the week in piney families, discipleship groups. However that happens, accountability. We need to be listening to the word frequently. And you must know his word thoroughly. So in addition to just 
hearing it, you must study the Word, dig into biblical doctrine so that your peace is not quickly shaken by false doctrine. And this is something that we can and should be doing together, helping one another in this. And pastors aren't the only ones responsible for this. Um, I would invite you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Ephesians 4, 12 through 16. He says that the shepherds and teachers, if you're looking there at the end of verse 11, it's also sometimes translated pastors or pastor teachers. But what we are to do as pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's all the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We should be helping one another to have peace by helping one another to be more firmly established in the hope of our coming Lord, as we've been saying throughout this sermon series, to be more deeply knowing Scripture, to be more deeply rooted in the truths of Scripture. And together, our peace will grow as we come to know God's Word more completely. And you must trust His Word completely. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4 says, You keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Do you believe that? That peace isn't just a matter of hearing the word frequently and, and knowing it thoroughly, but that you won't have peace unless you actually trust the word of God completely. And again, we saw in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians that these believers were not in a peaceful situation. They were facing persecution. <clears throat> and yet Paul prays and desires that they would have peace. And there's no indication in the letter that he intended for them to move out of that situation and establish their peace in that way by, by escaping the persecution. Instead, he helps to establish their peace by reminding them that their suffering wasn't in vain, but that the Lord would one day grant them relief from their afflictions and do justice to those who were afflicting them. And we're still waiting for that day. But we also can find peace in trusting the word of the Lord that he will, absolutely will, return one day and make all things right and make all things new. So no matter what 
Trials are threatening your peace. Trust his word completely that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Trust his word completely. If you want to enjoy peace from the Lord of peace, you must listen to his word frequently, know his word thoroughly, trust his word completely, and you must obey his word diligently. As the old gospel song goes, if you grew up in a Baptist church like I did, you know this, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy, or I think we could say at peace in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Psalm 85 verse 10 testifies to this when it says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That means that there is a sweet harmony between righteous living and a peaceful heart. And this really shouldn't surprise us. It was sin that brought all the troubles and anxieties that we face into the world in the first place. And it's often our sin, our failure to obey God, that causes our peace to drain away even as believers, right? We know this. We know that there is a sweet harmony between righteous living and a peaceful heart because Jesus, who never sinned, lived in perfect peace. Amid all his temptations and all the trials of his life, Jesus lived at peace because he perfectly obeyed his Father's will. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He had peace resting in the love of his heavenly father because he gladly obeyed his heavenly father, even to the point of death. So remember that Paul didn't just write this letter to correct the doctrine of this church. That was part of it, but he was also addressing their sinful behavior. That's what we've been looking at for the last few weeks. So for some of these Thessalonians, uh, out of sinful motivations, they were not working. And then others were probably sinfully enabling them to not work. And still others were sinfully standing by and letting this happen, doing and saying nothing about it. And so Paul commands them to stop this, not because he has a power trip and he just likes to command people, but because he wants them to have peace. And he knows that true peace comes when we diligently obey the word of God. And so if you don't feel the peace that the Lord of peace gives, examine your life. Are you diligently obeying his word or are there areas of your life where you know that you are consistently disobeying? I can assure you that you will never have peace unless you root those sins out of your life. If you've made peace with your sin, you will never have true peace in your heart because the Holy Spirit working through your conscience, even if you've suppressed your conscience and so you don't recognize that your sin is, is causing you to, uh, to have no peace, even if that's the case, the Holy Spirit will not let you have 
deep and lasting peace if you've made peace with your sin. You're not enjoying peace with God, and so you won't have peace in your relationships. You won't have peace in your own heart. And sometimes we think that, well, I could have peace if all these people around me were more peaceful. If they were more conducive to my peace, I could have peace. Or if this situation would change, then I could have peace. But your circumstances don't have to change in order for you to have peace. The people that you're struggling to love and to forgive don't have to change in order for you to have peace. But your submission, your obedience to God, that does have to change in order for you to have peace. And when you strive diligently to obey the word of the Lord, you'll be amazed at the way that the Lord of peace will begin to fill your life with a peace that passes your understanding. That you would say, I don't understand this. Nothing's changed in my life around me. Circumstances haven't changed. Although if we live at peace and if we're forgiving and obedient, often we will have more peace in our relationships. But even if the person responds with bitterness, with anger, we can still be at peace because we know that we are walking in obedience to our Heavenly Father. And in all of this, remember that the Lord of peace doesn't owe us peace. We can't, we don't, and we can't earn peace by doing the things that I've been talking about, by listening to and knowing and trusting and obeying His Word. If he gives us peace, it's because the Lord of peace is also the Lord of grace. And this grace is for all who call on him. Look at verse 18. This is Paul's last word in this letter. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. How incredible is it that Paul prays this for all the people that he's writing to? You whose bad doctrine is leading you to be anxious, there's grace for you. You who are sinfully refusing to work that I'm telling the church to discipline, there's grace for you, even in that discipline. Those of you who are enabling them to not work, there's grace for you. Those of you who are standing by and not doing anything about it, there's grace for you. You who aren't experiencing the peace that the Lord wants you to enjoy, there's grace for you. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul wants grace to be the last word that they hear from him. And may this remind you today to live in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you have failed to frequently listen to his word, there's grace. When you have failed to thoroughly know his word, there is grace grace, when you fail to completely trust his word, there is grace. When you fail to diligently obey his word, there's grace. And so, as we prepare to take communion now, remember that there is grace for you today. Again today, there is grace for you. And remember that this grace comes to you at a great cost. It costs Jesus his life. The bread and the juice that we take in communion 
They remind us that Jesus willingly gave up his body to be beaten and hung on a cross and his blood poured out, making payment for all your sins, all your sins, your sins past, present, and future. And he did this in order to reconcile you to God. He did this so that by grace, through faith, you might have peace with God. As Romans chapter 5 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. And in reconciling us to God, Jesus broke down all the walls of division between us within the church because by his death, what, it, what our sin required, he was showing us that at the core, despite any external differences, at the core, we are all just sinners in need of grace. And he died to bring us peace with one another. And in making final peace with God and with one another, he's made it possible for us to have true peace in our own hearts, a peace that's not dependent on our circumstances or how others treat us. This is all by his grace through faith in the cross. And I want to remind you this morning that this grace it's not dependent on how well you've obeyed him this week or even in the past months. It is grace. So it depends only on what Jesus has done in reconciling you to God, bringing you to God. It's an invitation this morning as you take communion. It's an invitation to the grace of confessing your sin. That is a grace. It's an invitation to the grace, to the grace of walking in repentance for your sin. It's an invitation to again today enjoy the peace of being reconciled to God. And so if you're trusting in what Christ accomplished for you on the cross, you're invited this morning to uh, come up in a few moments after I pray and to receive anew the grace of God today as you take communion. You'll exit to your left, you'll come up and receive the communion elements and then go back to your seat and you can take them there. But since communion is only for those who are trusting in Jesus, if you don't have peace with God because you haven't received his grace through Jesus, please don't come and take communion today. But I would ask you, don't you want to know this kind of peace? Don't you want a true and lasting peace? Are you tired of trying everything else? experimenting with everything to try to find peace, only to be disappointed, only to find that it doesn't last, that it's not true peace. Only the Lord of peace can give you what you're longing for. So won't you trust him today? You can talk, you can talk to Jesus right there in your seat while others are coming up to take communion. Um, tell him you want this peace. Tell him that you are trusting in him alone to give you peace with God, to give you true and lasting peace in your life. And if you, you want to talk with someone, if you want to pray with someone, I'll be up here in the front during communion, or you can um, go to Pastor Steve, who's in the back. He would love to talk with you, pray with you. If you don't feel comfortable maybe talking to someone today, 
you fill out a connection card and drop it off in the uh, offering box in the back before you leave, and we'll connect with you this week. But I would plead with you, don't leave here today without taking some step toward Jesus. He's eager to give you grace and peace. I'm going to pray, and then for those who should, you can come and receive the grace of communion. Lord God, I, I thank you again for your word that you have spoken to us. And that you have spoken to us in words of grace and peace. That you've not only revealed through your word our deep and desperate condition in our sin, but you have revealed to us also that you are a God of mercy and grace, a God who gives a peace that, that we have destroyed. You didn't destroy it, God. We did. But you are the one who has brought peace in Jesus Christ and will one day make peace in all of creation. We look forward to, the, to that day with great longing and anticipation, and I pray that our communion celebration today would give us a greater longing for that day so that we have a deeper sense of peace now. Jesus, we thank you for being our peace. We pray in your great name. Amen.